I'm fine with being insulted, like from both of them, because they've got the accents. We were never snooty enough to call it a dinner party. You know you've got a sniper rifle on you the whole time. Hi, everybody, and welcome to the official Dream Dinner Party podcast, the official podcast of us asking our guests what three people, living or dead, they would like to invite to dinner. I'm your host, Ross Bullen. Hi, everybody. I'm your other host, Gary Almeter, and today we are honored to have Kimberly Harrington with us. She is a perpetual presence on humor sites like McSweeney's. She's the author of But You Seem So Happy. A Marriage in Pieces and Bits essays, and you can't see it, but I'm holding it up. It is simultaneously uh, profound and funny, and everything you really need to know about Kimberly Harrington can be found on page nine, where she identifies her high school yearbook ambition, and that is to go to college and marry the perfect man, but party it up first, exclamation point. Live in Maine and stay in touch with the best friends I've ever had, exclamation point. So without further ado, I'll introduce our guest, Kimberly Harrington. Hi, Kimberly. Hi. Hi, Kimberly. Welcome. I'm pretty sure I missed the day when I was supposed to fill out what I wanted to do in my high school yearbook, which tells you <laughs> all you need to know about my ambitions. Won't, won't remember to show up that day, uh, but hopefully it works out anyway. So are you are you from Maine originally? Is that uh is that what I infer from that or No, what I love is that makes everyone think that I'm either from Maine or I live in Maine, but I am originally uh I was born in Rhode Island. I grew up in Massachusetts and I live in Vermont. So uh I used to go to Maine in the summers and so that kind of throws the whole curve off. <laughs> Basically, I've never lived there. You're kind of encircling Maine, though. You've got it. It's like a game of risk. You've got it. I'm closing in on it slowly. And and I do mean slowly at this point. (laughs) Were you a kind of Bunkport Mainer in the summer? No, I know. Were you a a lobster, E.B. White sort of Mainer? I was a uh, car camping dirtbag from Massachusetts going with my family. Yeah, I mean, doesn't it sound so fancy when I say I spent my quote unquote (laughs) summers in Maine? It's like I spent like 10 days each summer, you know, camping out of my dad's pickup, like those, those, uh, piggyback campers, Mm -hmm. you know, 70s style. So yeah, it's, it sounds so fancy and it, (laughs) to rest me was not fancy. Maine offers both both varieties of vacation and va- in vacation land. It seems the, the 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 fancy and the not fancy. We oh yeah. I went to Kennebunkport, Maine this summer, and it is the, one of the weirdest places I've ever been. I have to say, it's like because you're. I just, we just wanted to go to a beach, and it's a, a nice one, I guess. There's a public beach, but you you know, you just feel like you're in some kind of because of the the bush compound and everything. You feel like you're in some kind of weird alternative reality that I just didn't see anywhere else in Maine, and I'm you know, sitting there in a decrepit Canadian Subaru Outback, feeling like I'm about to be, you know, shot with a tranquilizer dart and gathered in a butterfly net and, you know, kicked out of town like the Big Lebowski or something. It was uh I feel like that's a, that's like a coastal New England quality in general. Mm. And uh, I spent one summer in Hyannis, like right, I guess I was in college. So it was, um, you know, a very lost summer of not doing much, but going out and working at an army Navy store and quote unquote working, just being hung over there. So, you know, the beaches that we would go to were near the Kennedy compound in Hyannisport. And so if I'm remembering correctly, at least the time, 
you couldn't, I don't think you could have privacy rights to a beach. So like you could technically walk on the beach, but when you tried to walk on the beach near the Kennedy compound, there would be all these signs that said, if you are approached by attack dogs, do not move. And someone <laughs> will, someone will come get you or something like that. I mean, it was just like, you know, just walking the line of being threatening, but legal. Yeah. Like a, an extremely polite version of mr burns or something <laughs> releasing the hounds yeah the most the most new england way of threatening you yeah i mean i feel like the bush compound the threat is much more obvious it's like a rocky oh outpost. i would think so don't yeah. go and people would stop their cars when we drove by this time uh the, there were there were bushes uh out swimming uh off rocks i don't know which ones i don't i don't really care but uh <laughs> just for the record listeners ross did use finger quotes when he said the word bushes bushes yeah <laughs> I, you know i People, the finger, it was an implied finger quote whenever anyone says. says We're both using them a lot, which is great on a podcast. That's good. Yeah. Yeah, No, all the, I'll I'll break out the illustrations later. Um, But, uh, but yeah, cars pulled over and there's then, you know, people are like gawking at, at, at the, the swimming bushes. Uh, But there's also like just a row of like black tinted window SUVs right there. And you know, you've got a sniper rifle on you the whole time. I'm like, I'm just going to keep driving to the place we're getting lobster rolls because I don't really, I don't care. You know, they're vaguely famous people, not even ones I'm, I'm like a big fan of or anything. So going to swimming keep... bushes sounds like the worst summer attraction of all time. It does. It sounds like my, my failed hardcore band from 1993 <laughs> or something, <laughs> which did not actually exist, but, but if, I wish it did now. It doesn't air quotes. It doesn't air quotes. That's right. Keep it on the keep it on the record. Well, that's I mean that's interesting. We were talking about you know, uh, it seems like that's a a certain a certain kind of dinner or dinner party vibe on the coastal New England. You know, yeah. lobster rolls and Republicans and yeah, old money. Kimberly, do you need time to amend your your dream dinner party list after following this this conversation? Or so I can include the swimming bushes. Yeah, or are you ready? Are you still ready? To I think know? I'm all set. I think they'll do fine without me. Just invite a Bush, a Kennedy, and an attack dog and see what happens. And, uh, yeah. Bound to be entertaining. So uh, one thing that we usually kind of, so sort of our, our guiding, our guiding question here, our, our, our principle is the, 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 that sort of cliche question about, you know, what three people living or dead you would invite to a, to a dinner party. Have you ever encountered, like, I guess this is, it's one of these questions that I guess come up in like, you know college application essays or job interviews or just like small talk I guess have you have you ever sort of like encountered that question before or, or sort of you know had to think about this question before now or have we you know assigned new new homework to you you assign new homework to me I have to say so I feel like this is the kind of question that you know it, it's like a question that would circulate with a seemingly like sophisticated crowd, right? Okay, so I did not grow up <laughs> with a sophisticated crowd. I mean, I just, it's just so funny to me. Like, I just don't think I ever saw the question until I started reading the New York Times book review, which I probably started reading like four years ago and I'm almost 54. So I think that there's just kind of this whole, um, just this world that exists beyond my actual experience that it's so funny that this is like second nature to so many people like oh I've given this so much thought and I know Mm. exactly what I'd serve I'm like well get ready because you are going to starve at this dinner if I'm in charge of it like 
didn't even know what a dinner party was for most of my life. So that's why as soon as you asked them, like, oh, oh, you want to ask me this question? Great. Like, this is going to be a very sketchy dinner party. My favorite kind. No, I, I, same here. I mean, I don't think, I can definitely tell you my parents never had a dinner party when I was growing up. Like, you know, maybe someone was stuck at our house, so they had to, we had to feed them. But it was never like a, a coordinated a coordinated thing nor did anyone ever pop the proust questionnaire on anyone you know like those whatever or whatever the new york times book review yeah, asked absolutely people, not you know what books do you have on your bedside table and i'd be like i don't know the garfield anthology <laughs> <laughs> calvin and Hobbes. yeah or i mean there were dinners and there were parties but we were never refined or um snooty enough to call it a dinner party you know well, I feel like dinner party kind of indicates this level of sophistication of being a little bit dressed up and having like more than one course, yeah. <laughs> having cocktails, you know, I mean, my experience of growing up was, you know, we would have summer barbecues, um, didn't even really have block parties because we just didn't, it's a rural town. And so yeah. there's not even that suburban culture around it, you know, r- the random neighborhood holiday party that I think happened exactly once and then everyone got divorced like within two years so like (laughs) no one was married anymore you know it's just it's just so funny to me like I just didn't really encounter it probably till I was in my 30s and was invited to dinner parties so didn't even know the etiquette around like oh you can't just roll in yeah and eat like at the free restaurant you know like oh you should bring stuff I mean there's just a whole it's like this kind of cultural shorthand that no one teaches you yeah and you you know you kind of go into it and you're like oh I'm I'm the dumbass that doesn't even know how this works I think it's just like we're hanging out and eating so it's it's I find it very interesting what a dividing line it is and how you grow up or where you went to school if you went to you know college and all that It also implies a sort of arbitrary guest list, you know, like you mentioned a neighborhood party, like there was always uh, like a reason for an event, you know, like we're we're hosting the kids, parents from the kids little league team, or we're hosting my side of the family, or we're hosting your side of the family or the neighborhood or whatever. Whereas you watch like Woody Allen movies and he like invites his orthodontist and then he invites... (laughs) you know his 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 nephew and then he he just invites random people assembles them together and then says talk so i I think there's that element with which you know i'm I'm unfamiliar yeah i mean i probably picked it up from like watching seinfeld or something which was just like a show i loved as a, a teenager i guess but had no it was just a completely different world right the idea of like adults going out and having dinner without with just friends without it being like this practical thing I think in the probably the first, the first and maybe the only time in my life where I ever went to those kind of dinner parties would be like when I started going to uh, grad school in my in my 20s, which was weird because people wanted to do like, uh, not me so much, but people wanted to do like sophisticated type things. Right. Everyone made like $12,000 a year. So yeah. it obviously had a potluck dimension. And it was like, uh, oh, so I've also brought a tub of hummus and some carrot sticks. And then that was <laughs> that was that that. So a lot of hummus, a lot of carrots and like a box of wine. And that worked out usually, but it wasn't quite uh, super sophisticated or anything. Yeah, you can't do that now. Like, that's the term of doing that when you're in your 20s and even early 30s is that you can kind of get away with doing things on the fly. And then, you know, as you get older, it's like, that's why I don't have dinner parties. I don't cook. 
Like, <laughs> you know, it's like, I, I love the socializing, but I don't cook. And so it's, it's like, I can't think of anything more stressful than inviting all these people into my home. So are you having, is your dream dinner party catered? Are you ordering in? Are you, is it a potluck? Like what's happening? It will either be absolutely have to be catered if people do not want to starve, or it will be the sort of party where you show up thinking you're starting with cocktails and then cocktails kind of end up being the entire night. And then I do what I do with my friends, which is like, Oh, I just remembered I have a bag of chips and some Trader Joe's guacamole. Do you guys want that? Like they're so used to me not feeding them when they're here. I always tell them to eat before they come over and have drinks. So like, it's going to be one of there's either going to need to be this professional paid for part or it's just going to spin out of control and be this just drunken fiasco. And I think the the three people I'm thinking of inviting could uh, it could could get interesting. That's helpful knowledge to know. Those are your parameters. I like the I think the idea of the official dream three day bender is just as exciting as a dinner party. <laughs> in some respects, the official dream lost weekend or whatever you know who's, who's going who's going on that journey with you. Okay, that's good to because I mean, but we've that's that's fine. I mean, we've had some guests who are like insisting that if they have a, a dinner party, they'd have to do the cooking. That's sort of my experience these days. But we've had a variety. You know, people are getting takeout. Someone's going to a suburban uh, San Diego Tony Romas. I mean, we've got a, <laughs> we've got a number of uh, we've got a number of. Stay tuned for that one. We've got a number of, of options out one. there. We had someone rent a um like an abandoned mansion. Oh, that's or, right. Yeah. Yeah. All right, but your your dinner. Well, if I is, say, what if I say I want to rent an abandoned mansion? Do I get that idea first? I think. <laughs> I, I suppose it could be a new abandoned mansion. Rent the bush Pick those guys out. Yeah. <laughs> just tell me whatever the other good ideas are, so I can steal them in advance. No, no. I it's the that's the 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 beauty of the dream dinner party is there are virtually no good ideas, only only interesting disasters. So I can't confirm yeah. for mine. Yes. Perfect. I'm curious to know who's uh, who's who's showing up first, Kimberly. Who's your who's? Uh, is this? A, oh, sorry. Uh, is this so? This will be at your 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 house, or, or or do you have a neutral location? Oh boy, I didn't really. Th- I have to say, I didn't think of a location. I can just make it up. Yeah, I did not think of a location. I think I was so freaked out by the food question, which I often am, that it just completely wiped out any location thoughts. I think I could pull something together pretty quickly. Oh, it would be renting a place. Trust me, because okay, okay. nobody's hanging out in the um, raccoon's nest of a house I currently am occupying. So I can't let these people come over right now. Neutral, neutral territory of some yeah, kind. some sort of neutral, fancyish territory. Okay, I don't know what kind of neutral, fancyish territory can one find in in Vermont. There's got to be some well, an uh, abandoned mansion, obviously. There you go. Oh, perfectly. Yeah. There's somebody- <laughs> One of the a for a foreclosed someone who lost half their fortune in Bitcoin. No, you don't want to do that. That sounds like such a romantic idea, and it's not. It's or like a haunted idea. Yeah, like there's yes, a, it's there's a haunted a idea. There. Okay, so in the undisclosed location, uh, the, there's a knock at the door, and it's your 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 first guest. Uh, who is it? My first guest would be Phil Hartman. Oh, oh, okay. wow, oh, oh, awesome. Tell us about that. Yeah, yeah. You guys and I have been going back and forth trying to schedule this, and I have to say, he was the first and only person I came up with uh, for the longest time. I just feel like such great affection 
for him as a comedian and a performer. And every time I'm reminded of him, I kind of have that like, uh, I can't yeah. believe he's gone sort of reaction. And when I see clips of him, um, it's interesting because it's like, you know, in a weird way, I remember where I was when I heard that he had died. Like it was so shocking to me that in, in it's more like in retrospect, I find it interesting that that stands out to me so much more than like a political figure or, or like a massive celebrity. It's like, I just remember being so genuinely shocked and so sad. I remember that too. It was so, so sad. And it was, we were right on the cusp of this era where we're, there's news all the time, right. you know, yeah. I think, was it 95 or 96? It was, it was like 97 or 98, I think. Oh, okay. That's about what I remember it. Yeah. But it was certainly in that, that era, but yeah, I learned about it in the, I think to Gary's, what you were kind of getting is I learned about that in the newspaper the next day or something, not, uh, not like, Oh, Phil Hartman's trending on Twitter. I wonder why. And it's right. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like it might've even, I mean, I was at work, so it must've been either in an email or radio or something like that. Uh, you know, music playing in the studio sort of thing. And, um, and I, it really, like I started watching SNL with my dad when I was a kid, you know, again, I feel like I don't think I've really reflected that much on how much comedy was in my life for a really long time. And, um, I just, it was just the backdrop for so many things. I think that, uh, and I've written about this before that where I grew up, I grew up with a lot of really funny people, but boys were allowed to be funny and it was almost impossible (laughs) to get boys to laugh at anything, you know, and like now it's different. I'm still friends with these jackasses that I grew up with, but it's, it's amazing um, how ingrained that is in that experience. So it's like comedy was always there, but I never felt like, oh, that's a thing that, that uh, girls are actually necessarily good at or encouraged to do. And um when I think of moments like that, that it's just like, oh, there are so many of these performers that I was a huge fan of when I was a kid and a teenager and my friends and I would riff on all of that stuff in SNL and then right through college, you know, there was, it was just like such a great era. So I think that that's part of it too, is that he was such a, um, he wasn't, you know, one of those big giant repetitive characters. I mean, he had those, but you just, I mean, the Bill Clinton that he did is still so funny to me every time I see a clip of it. And there's, there's tons of stuff that he did, but I feel like, I just think he's really interesting from a longevity standpoint on that show and not being necessarily the biggest flashiest star you know, and that still happens now, you know, like the, it, and it probably, it, it's only gotten worse, really, like the flashiest characters and get all the attention. And then yeah. the people who kind of are the glue don't get the, that same sort of a attention or credit. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think we would have a good time. I think oh, he yeah. would, I don't think he would care what we ate. <laughs> no, I think he would be up for sitting around having some drinks. Oh yeah. No, I mean, he was on that, that, that show for a long time, right? Like maybe eight, yeah. 10 years, something. And it, it's interesting. Cause I mean, if you, I'm sure you, as you know, like you read accounts of any of the the women on the show at that era, they basically had that, that same experience of being like, 
shut out like really really funny people like you know julia louis dreyfus was on yeah. SNL, maybe a little before phil hartman was but like you know just didn't get much to do on the show and now is you know widely beloved as a comic genius and all that stuff and right. so i bet he'd have a lot to i bet he'd have he has some stories to tell needless to say <laughs> about that time period um I would have been, I think, like, probably, I would have caught some of the SNLs when he was on. I remember, like, Chris Farley did that, like, farewell. He was, like, an angel or something flitting around him when when Phil Hartman was leaving. I think I saw that. Yeah. But I think I would have been uh, too young for some of his stuff. But I remembered him, uh, like, for me, the, the thing that still sticks out in my mind is his work on The Simpsons, where he voiced oh, yeah. so many, uh, you so know. Good amazing characters troy mcclure lionel hutz uh <laughs> you know that i it, and it's funny i i sometimes watch those with my my son who's seven and he doesn't quite get it entirely uh, i have to explain like what the planet of the apes is before i can explain the planet of the apes musical um and he always finds those characters so funny as well and it's almost you know i i, I almost find myself on the verge of having to explain why that character doesn't appear on the show anymore and it, it gets too real too quickly you know it's it's pretty right. uh it's pretty sad and I feel like that was before we knew who a lot of the voices are yeah. in animation. I mean, there wasn't as much animation no, no. as there is now, but like Big Mouth, like you you just know, like it's just so star packed and know all these voices. And I feel like I'm sure historically I'm completely wrong and I'm a little too much of a Phil Hartman fan to you. Know, like I'm probably remembering it inaccurately, but I feel like his voice was so recognizable in those characters. that It was really yeah. fun. It was fun to recognize his voice. I, this is the thing I I always rec- you always recognize his voice and whatever he's in. I find with I watch a lot of cartoon movies because I have a seven year old and a two year old. They always hire like so many celebrities to do these animated films. And I can never tell who it is. Yeah. Or you can you can know it's somebody, but not it just like not. And same with car commercials. Oh, I I, I know that, but. I don't yeah. know if you guys have seen Sing or Sing to these animated movies about singing animals. The main one's like a porcupine or something, uh, I think, or no, no, it's not. It's um like a koala or something. Um, and I'm like, oh, that's the main character. It's Matthew McConaughey. And for the life of me, <laughs> you would not know this was Matthew McConaughey because he doesn't sound like Wooderson or whatever. Like that's the Matthew McConaughey I want to hear. Instead, he's just <laughs> he doesn't like, sound super high. <laughs> yeah, he doesn't sound incredibly high and like, you know, that would be a different movie and just as entertaining. But but here I'm like, why did you pay for Matthew McConaughey to do this? It could be literally anyone. Whereas with Phil Hartman, <laughs> you always know who it is, right? It's it's just, you can't miss it. So did you and your dad watch Saturday Night Live? Like, wasn't it an event? Or did it just, oh, it's Saturday, it's 1130, he's up, I'm up. Or or did he, did he say, Kimberly, come, it's time to watch our show? I feel like we just, we were up and we would watch it like... Mr. Bill was on like I loved that like those animated shorts and I'm trying to think like it is so odd that we watch it together because it's pretty young when some of that stuff was on but he also he bought like Steve Martin's comedy albums and I would just sit around and listen to those you know it's just so funny because I just I just forget that there was that sort of stuff in the house because it's not like I think of my dad is particularly into comedy or that we had some like big conversations about comedy we just didn't like you know how you talk to those people like oh yes I was schooled in all forms of comedy and my parent blah 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 it wasn't like that it was just very like it was just entertainment and I think because there weren't eight million channels and 
we were both up. I just, I'm an only child. So it's like, it's not like it's a big family. We were the two who were up and then we would watch it. And we were both really big laughers too. <laughs> he has a very distinctive laugh. And so I think that was just, you know, it was just fun. It wasn't necessarily an event, but I think it's, yeah, I just really remembered um, being kind of steeped in that in a way that, you know, was so specific to that time. Yeah. You know, like you couldn't watch it the next day. You had no. to watch it then. And if you wanted, and certainly as I got into high school, like if you wanted to be able to talk about it at school, which we all did, then you oh, had sure. to watch it. Yeah. If you want to watch Sinead O'Connor rip up a picture of the yeah, book totally. live, yeah. you yeah. had to watch it. Yes. Yeah. That was that was definitely a thing, like the cultural cachet of like have, yeah. knowing what happened. Now it's like, I know if anything good happens, it'll show up on YouTube or Twitter the next day and I don't need to watch exactly. it. I don't have cable. Like, I don't know. Like, how would I, how didn't know how I would watch it these days? I can't even remember the last time I've watched it actually live. And my son is a big SNL fan and he just catches up on it the next morning. Yeah. It's like, well, that does make more sense, doesn't it? <laughs> does your son know who phil hartman is like have you watched old episodes with him no we haven't watched too much old snl um we're kind of making our way through uh seinfeld right now and um but yeah we haven't watched a ton of old snl together he tries to get me to watch some of the newer like it's just so funny it's so generational right you know because i think i've tried to get him to watch when they'll do this big clip specials you know, I'm the only one laughing at certain stuff. It's yeah, just like yeah. not even registering at all. And then he'll, you know, show me some of the weekend update jokes. And I'm like, okay, like <laughs> there's definitely some, uh, some disconnect moments with what we think is funny. So much of it is topical, right? I mean, like, you know, exactly. that's the thing. It's like, oh, another, take that Oliver North, you know, like nobody, yeah. <laughs> nobody's, nobody's yeah. catching that these days. Yeah. That's like kind of the experience of watching Seinfeld has been interesting because I thought, it would all age badly. I was kind of braced for how badly it was going to age. And it's more like the the seasons that they did his stand-up. It's just the references don't make any sense. They're yeah. like pay phones and car phones, yeah. Car phones and you know, all the stuff that doesn't even exist anymore. And then the stories actually hold up. Like there are yeah. a few things that don't uh didn't age well, but I was kind of surprised. It was like one or the other. There was yeah. kind of no middle ground. No, I've watched some of them too. And I'm like, it's, I mean, it's just a well-written show. Like if you look at the people who wrote for that show, all exactly. Larry David, primarily Larry Charles, people like that. I mean, they're just obviously extremely, have had long careers in comedy beyond that, that show. Right. And, and you know, that, that kind of shows. I keep pointing out to him, like the existence of cell phones wipes out almost yeah. the entirety <laughs> of that show. I, I'm sure someone's done it, but like uh, just a, a whole list of, of, you know, famous media artifact, like films, TV shows that are just ruined with cell phones. And that's pretty much all of them. You know, I mean, yeah, like the whole show is basically not being able to get a hold of someone and, yeah, or find a car. It's just like that you could not do these stories. It's it's, it's so interesting. Yeah. I know there's many of those modern Seinfeld parody accounts. So it should be one episode, yeah. just all four of them sitting on their phone for half an hour, uh, you know, <laughs> resolving, resolving all the dilemmas. Okay, so now I feel like one concern when you have people over for a dinner party is what if there's nothing to talk about, right? I mean, I with some of the some of the guests we've had, uh, you know, we people have invited people of who are like of historical interest but might not be very fun. With Phil Hartman, I think you've got your bases covered. Like, you know, you'd want to ask him about SNL. Is there is there anything else you'd want to like? Because he's there first, right? So you've kind of got him one on one for a little bit. Uh, is there anything you'd want to know about that? Uh, that that you know you you're you're dying to ask him or, or anything like that i just want to hang out with him 
Yeah. I feel like my list is entirely selfish and I don't even care if they all get along or not. It's like, it's my party and I got to invite who I want. Yeah. Kimberly, that's exactly, it's, it's your party, right? Yeah. Just that's make, the spirit just of make it. it work. You guys, like I yeah. rented this place. I'm not even feeding you and you came. So <laughs> get along or don't, I don't care. It's one night. That's good. I like it. So it's like an abandoned store, no catering, <laughs> but everyone's been, Hey, yeah, it's perfect. Look, it's my party. No one is going to know what happened. It could be terrible. It could be the worst night of everyone's life. Everybody should eat a little something before they go to a dinner party anyway, because you're going to be waiting for hours for food, you know? You gotta, you gotta... Hey, that's my philosophy. Fill up. Yeah. I mean, it's like the, it's like the having small children philosophy, like fill up and use the bathroom before you head over. It just makes sense. It just makes sense. Okay. So you, you and Phil Hartman having, having some cocktails on an empty stomach in an undisclosed <laughs> yeah, locale. I mean, what could go wrong? <laughs> what could go wrong? Uh, who knocks on the door? Who who joins who joins this party? We are gonna bring the mood down immediately with Tom York. Okay. Oh, wow. oh yeah. Okay. That is a, a a somber British addition to your party. Yes. I was raised by somber British people, so I love it. But let's yeah. bring the room down. Yeah. Like let's talk about depressing shit. Mm-hmm. Let's like hang out again. I just wanna hang out with him. Like it's probably a mistake. You know, like you don't want to hang out with people you really think you want to hang out no. with. I suspect this one's a mistake, but I'm doing it anyways because this is like my one chance. Yeah, yeah, oh yeah. To meet him and hang out with him. And although I will probably spend the whole night like that, you know, that Chris Farley sketch with Paul McCartney where he's just like, remember, remember? Yeah. that song? <laughs> that was awesome. Like that's all I would do. Yeah. That yeah. would be my entire conversation <laughs> with Tom York. Like, remember how you're in Radiohead? Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I take it you're a, a Radiohead fan. Yes, to an embarrassing degree. Yeah. So does he show up with, with his guitar or his, you know, Moog synthesizer and his microphone? or? I mean, that'd be up? ideal, but I feel right. like you can't really tell Tom York what to do is, would be my impression. Okay. This is where Gary's about to ask you if you get Tom York to record a song in your living, in your, uh, in your venue <laughs> for you to leak onto the internet Tom oh york. yeah is this the ip question is this yeah. a secret ip question tom, yes. tom york featuring phil hartman uh, <laughs> that would actually be pretty good that would be pretty good that would be so good yeah. i think whatever place i would rent there would have to be like a secret instrument room just at the ready like yeah. studio situation like oh oh hey tom york you've had a couple drinks like what do you know? There's like a studio right here full of all your favorite instruments. Like yeah. maybe you want to go check it out. And look, Phil, we have sheet music for fake plastic trees. Right? <laughs> yeah. How did that happen? Wow, this is so crazy. How did this happen? Yeah, I'd love to hear Troy, like Phil Hartman doing his Troy McClure voice, uh, karaokeing to, to fake plastic trees or something. That would be that would be a that would be a hit for me. That would be good. Maybe everything in its right place. Troy McClure. Yeah. yeah. All right, so you and and Tom York are um you know chatting, getting acquainted. If you had to, if you were to ask him, like Tom, clarify one lyric for me. Or, oh my or, god! Or, or clarify the origins of of one song. It's my favorite. Like what is like, what is that? Yeah, I don't think I could narrow it down. I think I would ask like a really irritating question. You know, that would clearly irritate him, like what's with the titles like why don't they match the songs you know like something that would really push someone over the edge yeah you know from a fan but he has to hang out for like a certain amount of time before he like you know what 
I don't need this shit. I am super famous. I'm Tom York of Radiohead. I'm done with this party. Kicks the door down. And in a better accent, like the American accent really takes away from how mad and snobby he would be about it. But I don't know if I've ever heard Tom York speak. I mean, I've heard him sing, obviously. I don't know if I've ever heard his speaking voice. Is he from like northern england or or i can't even i can't even imagine what his Again, accent is you don't know a, yeah american i don't know where anything is it's embarrassing i don't know oh i don't know i'm not american and i still don't know either and my parents are british so i should have some curiosity yeah okay i'm gonna put this on you then it's all me I it's just, all me i asked i'm, the I'm gonna pass the buck on that my other problem is i can't i'm terrible at understanding song lyrics i'm one of those people i could never tell you songs i've heard thousands of times i could not tell you the <laughs> lyrics and radiohead and Tom York specifically compounds this problem by being quite uh, mumbly at times, you know, it's oh, like, yeah. so, so Tom, when you kind of like murmured for seven minutes there, uh, what was, <laughs> what was that about? Really? It, it sounded <laughs> cool, but I didn't, I didn't quite catch that. Yeah, I, I think it also lends itself to thinking, you know, the lyrics and then, you know, occasionally I'll look them up and I'm like, Oh, well, I prefer my version. Actually. Yeah. <laughs> I think mine makes a little more sense than that. Yeah. Hold me closer. Tony Danza. Makes <laughs> yes. a lot more sense. That's right. Yeah. Tiny exactly. dancer. Right. <laughs> a lot of room for misinterpretation there. Um, what era of radio had, do you like the, the sort of like Ben's okay computer Pablo honey stuff, or like the or like the the when it got kind of weird you know your posts all of it yeah I mean I like I like you know I kind of was uh oh interesting intersection discovered Radiohead when they played on SNL there you go when Kid A came out so there's another SNL connection that's when you first heard them yeah I mean I heard you know everyone heard creep and, and all that but yeah, um yeah. But uh, my husband and I were living in Portland, Oregon at the time. And oh, wow. um, I remember, oh, another example of us staying up and watching it, maybe, <laughs> back in our youth. Um, and I remember both of us watching and being like, what the hell is this? And just being really mesmerized. And yeah. still, I mean, like that was like the the uh, the gateway drug, those performances on SNL. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just like, I feel like there aren't many moments where you can really identify like, oh, this is the moment when I became a fan of this, this band or this musician. And that to me is one of the most stark, very clear memories because we immediately bought it and we listened to it incessantly. I still do. I mean, there's a great album. Yeah. There's a running, and I mean, like all of there, there's a Radiohead playlist that has been in my car, like on this old uh, iPod touch for three years. And for the longest time, it was like, either we're listening to the actual radio or we're listening to this playlist. And my kids have been kind of indoctrinated into Radiohead as well. So that, like that brainwashing was, was pretty fun. One kid took to it immediately and one has finally come around at the age of 16. So I feel really pleased well done well done Kimberly yeah. yes I I mean that's all I've achieved as a parent honestly so I'm feeling good about it it's reminding me of uh do you know that um uh and I do this all the time to my kids as well but there's that onion headline where it's like cool dad ensures daughter will be in will love media that'll keep her completely out of touch with her peers yeah, and he's exactly. handing like the talking heads remain in light album mm-hmm. or something to a to a six-year-old that is our entire family I'm trying to teach my kids the the sonic youth album they should enjoy or something and like <laughs> yeah. we want baby shark man back to baby shark <laughs> yeah. that's our thing that's that's cool and all but yeah baby shark not interested 
what I, the one thing I always think about Radiohead is they're still really popular, and yet they got weird, right? Like they were kind of like a you know like the early stuff was very like '90s indie, really good. But then you know I remember when Kid A came out, it was like that was like a a divisive thing. Like definitely people oh, yeah. were like I don't get this at all, and other people I, who were like, okay, I was kind of neutral on them, and now they're awesome, and it was it really split opinion but they still say it's super popular oh like, yeah actually, if you get weird you know that that narrows your your audience a bit but they didn't and that's that's a that's kind of a cool thing they're definitely like extremely popular band but making music that's like i don't know kind of different from most like pop music that's cool okay but i do agree that as a dinner party conversation oh it's be, already off the rails i feel like phil hartman might I, he seems like a nice guy he also might start making fun of Song York at a certain point. That's okay. Situation. Like yeah, it's yeah. you know, I'm we're not even eating. No. So like what do I expect to happen? It's gonna be a disaster. <laughs> I, which is great. I love that genre of dinner party more than the successes. By, by it has the better margin. stories, honestly. Yeah. It's like I I could have invited anybody, but instead I watched, you know, uh Phil Harbin get arrested for assaulting Tom <laughs> York or something. That's a good story. Not everybody, not everybody's had that experience. Uh, but yeah, that's, uh, I can, I can see now how getting, getting a, a a layer of Phil Hartman established before you drop Tom York in there might, might help smooth things out a little bit. That could be, yes, be interesting. Yeah. That, that will like neutralize the Tom York effect. We'll see. Won't we? We will. We will. will. (laughs) I, I think we were joking one of the previous episodes about like, what this would look like as an animated series or something already. I can see. The like a very sulky Tom York cartoon in the corner and Phil Hartman trying to needle him a little bit or something. I feel like we could probably do a ripomatic using Sim- the Simpsons. Oh, it's true. That's true. It could be because it could they be. already have these characters. So there are, it's all there. Like little, yeah. Yeah. Let's get into the the Frankiac archive. <laughs> we have a third guest who's going to tip the scales. You know, really, who's going to change the change the entire chemistry chemistry of the event. Maybe bring you know a gallon of maple syrup. Yeah, you know, to do shots of in between, you know, whatever. So this is a this is a big third guess. This feels like a boxing yeah. decision or something here. This is this, this is, is no, this is this is like what does happen with this third guest because this could establish that there are teams at this dinner party. <laughs> the way this is breaking out, so the third guest is Rachel Cusk. Okay, oh, interesting. Wow. The, the novelist and. Uh... Yes. Okay. So this could quickly break down into factions is my thinking. It could be Phil and I on one side. Yeah. And then Rachel and Tom on the other side being like, look at these idiots. Yeah. Like, look at these American idiots. I'm fine with being insulted, like from both of them, because they've got the accents and they're smart. Like if yeah. you're smart and you're going to insult me, at least have the accent and then i will lap it up like most americans do like oh, oh so charming like you're, <laughs> like you're eviscerating me and i find it so sophisticated and yeah, charming yeah. Like, i'm there for it yeah 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 she is yeah she's british isn't she i thought she was in my mind i'm like maybe she's like technically canadian or canadians always know who other canadians are oh, that's true actually am yeah. i am i wrong because i feel like i think was she born in the u.s now i'm getting confused it's something like that she has if i'm correct she is she does have an accent see i'm th- this is the no, she's british part. for sure i just she also yeah she's also american or something i don't know you uh, know yeah, i feel like maybe she was born in california yeah 
And I only started reading her this year. So when I talk about kind of going back to the beginning of our conversation, you know, that that with certain writers, there's kind of this assumption of like being well-read your whole life and having all this education or, you know, it's like, there's, I read a ton when I was a kid. And then I really didn't start reading again until like seven years ago. <laughs> so I've had so many people because I've written about motherhood and, and marriage yeah, and yeah. divorce, like, oh, you, you must've read Rachel Cusk. And I'm like, no. And the more people demand that I do something, I have the character trait of absolutely resisting doing it, even if they're right. Yeah. And then uh, like, you know, every time David Sedaris comes to town, they're like, are you going to go see David Sedaris? I'm like, no, because you keep assuming I'm going to go see him. <laughs> and I absolutely refuse to go see him because everyone thinks I'm going to go see him. Because I'll but enjoy finally, it so much. Yes. That's... Oh my God. I get so mad about it. But this year I just bought every single Rachel Cusk book and I've been on a, a tear and I'm like, okay, fine. <laughs> turns out she's really good at this stuff yes yeah I mean who knew only everyone who told me to read her work I can confirm via Wikipedia that she was born in Saskatoon Saskatchewan Canada but then childhood in Los Angeles okay and then, so we're all right basically okay. we're, oh we're I love those answers biographical geniuses and there you go yes. so we all win I've read I think only one of Rachel Cut. I read outline which was sort of like the oh yeah the, the, the big one um, and that's like one of these, uh, you know, it's something that's called like autofiction or something these days where the character seems very closely hewed to the author's biographical identity and like plot wise, not a whole lot happens, but it's sort of like a meandering experience of a place and the, you know, and the, the conversations there. I liked it though. I mean, I've read a few of those, those books. I remember there's sort of an interesting discussion about like the outline stuff at the end of the book, but it's been a couple of years and my brain is, uh, books it's go for so my good. brain instantly. Yeah. How are you reading them, Kimberly? Are you reading like in chronological order? She yeah. has like a trilogy, right? Yeah, I'm reading her work in chronological order. So I'm up to like the last two books. Okay. Um, oh, wow. So yeah, I've just, I mean, it, 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 it's kind of like the seeing, you know, Radiohead on SNL. It kind of felt yeah. like the same thing. Like as soon as I engaged with her work, I'm like, okay, everyone was right. And then once I got to her... um you know, her book about motherhood, a life's work, and uh, and then the book about divorce was, you know, it was just, they're so mind-bendingly good. And I think what's interesting, I was just um, reading an interview with her. It was from a few years ago. And she was talking about, you know, there's been a lot written about how she really um, endured a lot of criticism for both of those, the book about motherhood and the book about divorce. Now it's so, you know, especially motherhood. So many people have written books um, on that topic and really honest books. And, you know, when I look back when she was writing, it wasn't all that long ago, but I can see, you know, like, oh, this probably, I mean, it freaks people out now because for sure. Yeah. People cannot handle it. But I thought what was interesting in this interview, she was comparing those books with outline and she's like, well, working on the outline, I'm obviously paraphrasing. I don't remember exactly what she said, but it was essentially that working on the outline series and how well they were received confirmed her suspicion that people prefer certain ideas be fed through a fictional woman than a real one. And I, <laughs> I did exactly what you both are doing. I just nodded and went, that is correct. Uh, so really fascinating to have read 
all of those books in a short period of time. And um, it's like, yeah, she's expressing really similar ideas and really hitting some points hard and people will take them from a fictional character and find it interesting. And if it's a real woman speaking about motherhood or marriage, they lose their goddamn minds. It's uh, very predictable. There's, there's been a couple of books recently and um, I'm thinking of Rachel Yoder's night bitch oh, about, yeah. a, about a new mom who turns into a dog. Yep. And then there's, there was one this year, um, the school for unwed mothers. It's on a lot of short lists. It's about yes, that. Um, I haven't read that one yet. I did read night bitch and I think here. it's the school for good mothers. Um, I have not gotten to that one yet. Like a dystopian. So, so to your point about Rachel Cusk, like adding a sort of like magical realism into the mother narrative also makes it palatable or oh, yeah. or is a way to express, you know what, motherhood's not all it's cracked. Motherhood's hard. It's not all it's cracked up to be. But rather than say that, I'm going to make a character who turns into a dog, you know, so. Yeah. And there's some really, um, yeah, there's, <laughs> there's so many good lines in that book, my God. But I, I feel like I've followed that sort of path too, having gone through on much, uh, much more obscure scale, much more under the radar scale uh, than Rachel Cusp. Like I, all I want to do is work in fiction <laughs> in, uh, in some of the ideas I want to explore. It's like, I've been down the path and um, it's, it's kind of a no-win path, honestly, to, to get into stories about your life um, when you're a woman writing about your life. I mean, there are things that are rewarding about it, but yeah, people love to lose it over that stuff. So what are you, what are you working on now? I am working on absolutely nothing right now. I can tell you that. But uh, when I do return to finally being able to write again. There's things percolating. Kimberly, yes, you're, you're a I, perpetual percolator. We can Yes, right. I, I was supposed to be writing over the summer. Instead, I just decided to constantly move. Um, so You decided to rent Penske, Penske trucks all summer? Yes, that's, that's right. Yeah. My summer vacation was just a lot of moving. Um, I am starting work on a novel that is more focused on, you know, I don't really have like a neat log line right now at all, but I would say that the, that the novel is exploring ideas around motherhood and marriage, but it's, it's fiction um, for sure. And I'd like to start working on a pilot again. Um, I tried to work on a pilot right after Amateur Hour came out and I worked on it for a while. And then I just got to the point where it's like, I'm, I'm done with this. And I think that's just kind of the writer that I am. I've accepted that. Like, I don't, you know, amateur hour came out and then people thought I was a motherhood writer or a parenting writer. And then, but you seem so happy came out. And then was I only going to write about marriage and divorce? And it's just kind of like whatever life stage I'm in, that's, that's what I want to write about. So I'm excited to, to get back into those things. Yeah, it seems like that's a real pitfall of nonfiction is that, you know, yeah. that, that it's it's what you, that's your bit, like that's your your shtick or whatever. And whereas with fiction writers, obviously, no one's surprised when a novelist writes about something completely different for their second novel. It's sort of what I like about, um, I guess, uh, like writing short comedy, you know, for like McSweeney's The New Yorker or whatever, is, you know, it sort of nicely blends nonfiction and fiction because it's almost always rooted in something quite real or recent, but like there's enough distance you can always basically say it's not really me, right? Like, you know, it's like, oh, yes. that's not me. It's satire, you know, that's, and that's both true and not true, sort of, because it usually is your opinion in some way. Yeah, that. and it's almost kind of nice 
if you ever discover like a format or idea that you can recycle. Yeah. Cause it's like a nice surprise. Cause you don't expect to be able to, you know, like a bingo card is like a great yeah, exactly. example, but something more original um, where you can kind of use like a similar format over and over. Cause you don't expect to, like you're constantly expecting that you're going to do like a one-off yeah. approach and you're going to have to reinvent the wheel every time. And yeah, that, that distance is gold. Like totally that is, yeah. personal distance is something like, uh, I wish my brain was thinking in, in humor. It's just not, um, I really have fallen off <laughs> the map in writing short humor. Um, it, it's, I'm waiting for my brain to click back into it. I'll, I'll get ideas and it's like, yeah, I can't, can't even write a first sentence. I do not even know what this thing is. I mean, the main appeal of it for me is that I'm lazy and they're all like 800 words or whatever. <laughs> yeah. Cause I'm like, I'm trying to write a book proposal right now. And I'm like, I don't know what it's about stuff. Who knows? Like that to me, those are the hardest questions. It's like the big picture stuff. I can never answer those questions. I'm like, yeah. uh, I think it's funny. I don't like, I just, I can never, but that's a big part of it is like having this big, and you need that when you're writing like nonfiction or fiction, like here's my, you know, my grand vision or whatever. And that's tough to get. I feel like my brain switches back and forth. Like, I feel like I could almost write a book proposal um, if it was nonfiction more easily now than I could write a short humor piece because I just feel like my brain does not know how to do it anymore. Yeah. And for a long time, I felt that it was easier when I was starting because I didn't know what I was doing. You know, there are all these classes now about writing short humor and writers working together and giving feedback. And I never did that. So like, I really went into it just like, they're, you know, just doing whatever. And then some of them hit and I felt like I could churn them out faster and they were better, not necessarily from like a writing craft standpoint. Like I look back at stuff that it's like, oh, I would have refined it a certain way. But now I feel like I know too much and I overthink pieces now. And I don't even know what's funny you know, I felt like I made myself laugh a lot more in the beginning. Yeah. And now like, I, do I even know what comedy is anymore? Is it gone from my head forever? Because I do not know if this is funny at this point, because I'm so hung up in the concept and the format and is it building? I didn't know any of that stuff when I started doing those pieces. No. And that's kind of what worked. I mean, I can see how the classes are valuable to people, but for me, I went in yeah. as naively as possible. And it was I sort of like, it's interesting you were saying about how you look back now and you realize how much comedy was you were surrounded as by as a kid. I had a similar thing where I never, I, you know, exact same thing growing up. And, you know, I never thought about it though. And I didn't think I published my first short humor piece till I was like 40 or something. Like I yeah. was definitely, I was like, oh yeah, wait, I've actually enjoyed comedy my whole life. I'm just an idiot and didn't realize it until. Yeah, same, exact same. This, you know, or I'm sure, I'm sure both of you guys had people like, you know, say, oh, you're so funny. And, and it's like, Okay, I was yeah. funny that one instance, but what are you saying when you tell somebody you're so funny? And it takes a long time until you start to like be able to say, I'm funny, you know? Yeah. Don't tell me I'm funny unless you tell me how I can also make money at it at the same time. <laughs> that's like that's just useless advice. Tell me but how to monetize. Can I monetize it? it? <laughs> that's right. It's a follow-up question. Yeah, it, it's it's interesting to figure out like what you do with that. It's like okay, I mean, I I I work as a I teach, you know, at at uh, university, and so that's always that's all I ever get in my evaluations is like he's nice, he's funny. I'm like, did you learn anything? <laughs> no, not at all. But 
he wasn't too mean about deadlines. Yeah. And uh, do you know what do you know what yeah. synecdoche is? No. Yeah. No. No. They use ex machina. We don't. We don't. We don't cover these things. No. No. Just jokes while I do have my powerpoints, but uh, but still, that's that's cool. Um, okay, so we've got Rachel. Rachel, just to recap, Rachel Cusk, Tom York, <laughs> Phil Hartman, and Kimberly. Is Tom York a parent? Yes. Yeah. Okay. And Phil Hartman's a parent. Yep. We've got all parents. Yeah. So what if the conversation devolves into, you know, did you puree your your baby food? <laughs> I think everyone, all the kids across the board are grown. Okay. Or are teenagers. So I think we're, You're good. thank God, if I had not thought that through, because the last thing I want to talk about at my non-dinner dinner party is milestones and uh, potty training and mm. parent groups. No, we're not going to talk about our kids at all. It's just not, no one's going to want to. Our kids are older. Yeah. No, like no one cares. We're not there to talk about our kids. We're there to get inappropriately drunk and like have some Trader Joe's guacamole at like <laughs> 1 a.m. And maybe I will also order pizza. I mean, this is the dream. I mean, that every every dinner party I, I or dinner party I go uh, occasion where parents sit down together to eat pizza while their children eat pizza. Um, yeah, oh, it's Usually, it, you know, talk about other things, but those topics are always on the table. And yeah. you know, it's uh, I, I can imagine a a different kind of dinner party in the 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 distant future. I will say I appreciated the the pizza dinners back in the day. Those were like lifesavers for sure. But yeah. We don't need to talk about our kids anymore. No. They're all set. I, I mean, my one kids these days complaint I will insert here is that when I was a kid, getting pizza was like a rare treat. Like once, oh, yeah. once a year, yeah. it's like pizza, this vaguely, you know. Lumber I mean, party. Nobody, yeah. Like, like this pizza. Are you kidding me? Amazing. Now it's just like this, this garbage again, dad, get it out of here. They're just, <laughs> just like, they're, they're not interested, you know? And I'm like, come on, man. Pizza, pizza. Can't get better than that. <laughs> Very true. That's, all the children I know, total total pizza skeptics, but that's okay. Yep. Who knows what they really want? Um, well, okay, that sounds like a, a a good a good dinner party lineup, or at least an interesting series. I mean, again, <laughs> it could it could break down into into factions, right? Like it could just be like Phil Hartman and I having having a grand old time. Yeah. Tom and Rachel getting like some sort of like intellectual conversation and also making fun of us but we're too stupid to know they're making fun of us <laughs> like i think it works out for everyone like either we all get along great or like we each have a conversational partner to hang out yeah. with yeah it's interesting i feel like if if rachel cusk and, and phil hartman really hit it off you're in a bit of a you then you're kind of forced to make conversation with tom york the entire time that's, that's okay because i want i want to marry him so it could also be like this dynamic where that we've all played out in college where you're just waiting out everyone yes. to like leave the party yeah 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 but like end up with the one person you've been talking to for five like investing five hours of your life into yes. like that could happen too i mean maybe that's my ultimate goal and i'm just not admitting it that was how all dating worked before tinder if as i recall yes. basically whoever you're whoever's still standing at the end of the night you know that's yeah uh, total crapshoot like did i yeah. talk to this did I charm this person for five hours for absolutely nothing? Yeah. Or do I have to take a cab home alone at three in the morning? You know, yeah, it's a, it's a strange Bad cab. ancient civilization we're discussing at this point, <laughs> but nevertheless, 
it's an intriguing combination of guests. Thank you for sharing them with us. We uh, we appreciate hearing your uh, your plans for this dinner party, or not quite dinner, you know. Uh, <laughs> Who knows what this thing's yeah, going to be? Drinking in a shed in, in Vermont or something. Yeah. It is going to be drinking in a shed in Vermont. I didn't want to admit that up front, but I think that's ultimately what we're talking about here. Love it. Again, yeah. your party, Kimberly. <laughs> yep. Your party, your I rules. I can't emphasize that enough, and I'll probably say it the entire night. Again, <laughs> my party. Exactly, yeah. Zip it, lock it, put it in your pocket, Tom. Like, not your party, my party. Two of you have come over on a first-class flight from the UK. <laughs> One of you has been brought back from the grave. My party, yeah. nevertheless. Yeah, guess what? This is what it is. If you're not having fun, there's some swimming bushes in the adjacent state. <laughs> yeah. That's go right. Yeah. Go hang out with go them. Go take it. swimming Go bushes. swim with the bush. Enjoy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Get out of here. Cool. Well, thank you, Kimberly. Thank you for thank joining you us. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. This was so fun. The official Dream Dinner Party podcast is hosted by Gary Elmeter and Ross Bullen. Maureen Harvey produces the podcast. Our theme music is for zero by Eaters. If you want to support the show, like, subscribe, leave us a review and share this episode with your friends. Thanks for listening and see you next time. Thank you.